Hi everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Nick Jackson from HashiCorp. Nick and I have previously worked together at a UK e-commerce company named Not on the High Street, which we often abbreviate to NOTHS. At NOTHS, Nick and I were part of a development team that worked closely with the ops team to build a cloud native platform. We learned a bunch of things about platforms, dev loops, releasing code, testing, and I was keen to pick Nick's brains on this topic in more detail. If you like what you hear today, I would definitely encourage you to pop over to our website at getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working with Kubernetes in the cloud. You can also find links there to our latest release of the Ambassador Edge Stack, the Open Source Ambassador API Gateway, and our CNCF-hosted Telepresence tool too. Hey, Nick, thanks for joining me today. Could you introduce yourself for the listeners, please? Yeah, of course. So I'm, I'm Nick Jackson. I work as a developer advocate at HashiCorp, and I've been HashiCorp for about three years. I am not a career developer advocate. My background is actually software engineering, so software development, software management, engineering team management, like all the things. Good stuff. So today we're talking about developer experiences and developer loops. Now, you and I have worked together in the past, which is an interesting connection right. here as well. But I'm talking when I say dev loops, I'm talking about the ability to very rapidly code, test, deploy, release, verify, that kind of thing. I'm sure any developer, we all recognize the good times and the bad times. Yeah. So could you, without naming any names, protect the innocent, right. could you describe your worst developer experience or your worst dev loop? So... I'm going to go something slightly different just to annoy you, but I think my worst dev loop as somebody who's been working in the industry quite a while is the current state of everything. Interesting. And, and I'm going to tell you why by explaining my best dev loop. So about 13 or so years ago, I was working as a .NET developer. Azure had, had just kind of launched. So we were Microsoft, we were deploying to Microsoft. From Visual Studio Code, I could press a button, it would build my code, and it would deploy it to my Azure instance as a canary 13 years ago. And that was, okay, so like, I admit that one-click deployment is not the right way you want to be able to do kind of check-ins and stuff like that. But we're talking about the flow, right? The dev flow, not what's going on in the background. Nowadays, what do I have to do? <laughs> I build this, I build it into Docker, I push it, I do this, maybe the CI flow kicks off, I wait for that to complete, then I've got it in my test environment and go through and play around with things. It's just very, very slow. Now, I appreciate why it's slow, because the complexity is NX times mm -hmm. what it, you know, what it what it used to be. And it has to be. We need distributed computing, multiple components, you know, complexity grows as, but why can't I have that developer experience in my modern environment? I think we as developers have to learn all of this tooling and, and some people don't enjoy doing that. I'm, I'm kind of like you, I, I'm curious, I, I'll dig into anything, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of things feel, feel quite unnecessary at the moment. Do you think it's important for developers to understand the business requirements to the point they can take responsibility for that kind of full life cycle? We see Netflix talking about full cycle quite yeah. a bit. Developers can create hypotheses, run experiments, and verify the results. They're kind of business aware folks. Yeah. Do you think that's important for every developer to be aiming towards yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah, 100%, because bugs happen. 
I see two different kinds of bugs. One is that it's a sloppy mistake, which you've written code, which doesn't have courage of a, of a unit test or, or something along those lines that you've misinterpreted what a, a, a sort of an internal API does. And, you know, and then you've got missing features. And, and I think actually for most developers these days, a lot of the bugs that they get are, are actually missing, missing features. It's maybe an edge case that hasn't been covered. Therefore, it hasn't been codified. Therefore, there isn't a test for that edge case. And I think if you are thinking about what the kind of the business use case is, what is the feature use case, you're translating that into what code do I need to write? And, and you're exploring all of these edges in your mind, which then you start to to sort of codify. Mm, totally makes sense. Taking a step back closer to the tech for a second, do you think modern architectures have impacted the dev loop? You kind of already hinted it. We're all yeah. building distributed systems these days. Well, it does allow us to break down complexity in the apps by building microservices, but there's obvious trade-offs with other things you've already hinted at in terms of build cycle. Yeah, I think... I'm trying to think how to how to put this. I, I don't want to say anything disparaging. I, I think the key thing is that if I'm going to say it the way that my brain says it, if you know what you're doing, it's not terrible. But I think the core problem is it, there is a massive gap between kind of just getting started and being sort of really confident with the architectures and the tools. And I think that's the core mm. problem. It's It's unnecessary knowledge. You need to understand how a Kubernetes deployment manifest um, is written. You need to understand how to build a Docker container. You need to, to understand how to attach your local computer potentially to a, a remote system. You need to, be able to understand how to interact with Prometheus to be able to dig through metrics to understand any edges. There's a lot going on. And... And then you've got to understand all of these integration patterns. So how does one service talk to another? How do I document my service? If you only have one service, you, you don't necessarily need to document it. But if you've got contracts between two, two pieces of the system, then you need to do things like contract documentation, like Swagger. And there's, there's yeah. a lot to learn. I, I feel that once you've learned it, it, it's fine. It kind of doesn't become a thing anymore, but mm -hmm. it's not the greatest experience. Yeah, developers, I think, are having to become more operationally aware, whether it's cloud, Kubernetes, right. even like VMs and stuff. What do you think? What do you think about that? Is it, again, the case of all developers need to be at least somewhat operationally aware? Or is there there's still roles, I guess, that are specialists as yeah. well? Or is it a mix of the, so mix of the two? I'll, I'll make, a, I suppose, a bold statement in that I would say that I've spent quite a lot amount of time and energy looking into this and learning all of these various different things and and i'm a developer so i you know even to the extent of really understanding like machine administration and mm -hmm. uh, and things like that i'll trade it all for a modern heroku <laughs> yes well said because ultimately what i want to be able to do is ship features how those features are shipped as long as they're shipped with with the the kind of the quality controls that i need such as the automated builds the automated test running and, and, and you know, the, those safety and security mechanisms, like how all of that happens. I, I don't, I don't care too much. I, I will kind of say that you have to have mechanical sympathy. So regardless of whether you can click a button and it just magically appears on the interwebs, 
you mm. still have to have mechanical sympathy of understanding what's going on in that infrastructure in order to, to, to write good performant code. Nice. You mentioned there's sort of a modern Heroku, and I totally get that. You and I have worked on Rails platforms as well, yeah. and Rails convention over configuration, fantastic stuff. What do you think the biggest challenges are now? Is it for the ops teams to build a platform? Right. Yeah, I think I think that's the key thing. I mean, the way that I, I look at everything, and, and I think Kubernetes is a perfect example, and I, I genuinely like Kubernetes, don't get me wrong, but I see Kubernetes as a set of primitives as opposed to the platform. I'm kind of waiting for somebody to build a platform on top of Kubernetes. And a big shout out to the folks at Rancher because I think they're doing incredible work around that problem. Mm. But yeah, I think that the level of interaction is too low level. We need a collection of higher level of abstractions. And that needs to be kind of generalized because I feel that what happens is people recognize that as a problem and they build their own passes. We, we shouldn't yes. be building passes. We should leveraging a pass. So when we're looking at, say, pass, traffic control is really important, be it traffic yeah. control ingress, traffic control service to service. What do you think is the best approach here? Should developers be controlling that kind of thing? Should operators be controlling it? Should operators be con- sort of providing some kind of self-service platform? What, what do you think the relationship should be around defining traffic control going forward? It's a it's a good question. and I And I think it's a... It's a shared responsibility. The The developer should control their own routes. So for example, mm-hmm. if you want to do some canary testing or dark deploys or something like that, then as a developer, you should be able to configure the, the ingress routing of, of your, your application to say, well, I want a 50-50 split between V1, V2 or a 10-95 split between V1, V2. I, I mean, I think operators have, have kind of got this ownership of the core route. But the developer should have access to to kind of take control of their own their own responsibilities. You want to be able to do things like controlling the the splits uh, between versions of service. So I want to do a canary deployment. As a developer or a development product team, I should be able to control that flow. If I want to do something like a dark deploy and I want to do some multivariant testing, I should be able to control the routing. To kind of say that you know, if this HTTP header is present or this cookie, then send traffic this way. If not, send to that. And that's kind of really, really important. I think that just kind of ties into very much that responsibility of modern microservice development. So I'm a big believer that the application should own certain things, and that that's things like not just application code, but you know, secrets, routing. Configuration, various platform, maybe even infrastructure level stuff, such as I've got configuration to to deploy databases and stuff like that. That's that's tightly related to the application. And I think when you kind of take this modern pizza team type approach, where an operations person is embedded into the development team, to mm-hmm. and we all do the DevOps thing. Don't have mm. DevOps engineers. Yes, yes, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I think you know that 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 routing is is absolutely essential and, and control over it. What do you think about the cross-functional, non-functional type requirements? I know you and I have done a bunch of work yeah. on the console uh, space in, in this, and there's retries, timeouts, things like that. I'm guessing that's super important. But again, more dev, more ops. What do you think? I think it's both. So, I mean, I would I would say that 
as, as a dev, you understand what's going on inside of the application code. Maybe as a, as a, as a more ops person, you're, you're, you're able to help out with infrastructure layer things. So, so for example, I have a service and the service is performing slowly. So I look at my application code and I can see that, well, this, this thing here, this block of code is running really, really slowly. And, and all I'm doing is writing a file to the disk. Well, the, the ops person can come along and go, well, I can see from the, the, the machine layer metrics that the IO on the disk is absolutely saturated. Mm-hmm. And I can also see that I'm using this particular type of cloud instance and the cloud instance only has a certain number of IOPS for, yeah. for the disk. So therefore, what we need to do is change the cloud instance, increase the IOPS for the disk and actually the problem of performance disappears. It wasn't a code level problem per se, and it wasn't a deployment problem. It was just, it was just the wrong machine. When you work together in a cross-functional team and you've got that tight relationship where there's shared knowledge, you know, it's just like that Venn diagram type thing mm-hmm. that, that works really sweet. And, and I think we saw that in action when we worked together at Not On The High Street. Yeah, indeed. So I, w- I wonder how much the platform can be used to drive the collaboration between dev and ops. Because when you and I worked together at Not On High Street, we, as a team, we got together with the ops team and we really yeah. thought about the kind of UX, yeah, in terms of how you uh, developers, we committed code, how that related to the platform, what ops op- offered us on the platform. And this was a few years back. We were using Mesos and Marathon pre-Kubernetes, but we really did think about this stuff. So yeah. do, do you think the platform, I guess, can be used as a as a key driver to increase collaboration? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think it, it makes sense having kind of centralized platforms. I think it drives a certain efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the things that we were doing were you, you can make a deployment you have a pipeline which runs your your unit tests. It can run some functional tests. At, at Noths, we we sometimes, and I say sometimes, had manual acceptance testing, and generally that was based on on our appetite for risk. So if I was making a very small change that I knew would have low risk impact if it went wrong, and actually I had high confidence that the work was correct and would be caught by the automation we just deploy continuously. However, if I was making a big change and I was unsure or it was high risk to the business, then we would take the additional security of of saying, well, we're going to have some some manual acceptance around this. And in both of those instances, pipeline is essential because the the manual acceptance tester can can actually deploy the versions of your application code into their their test environment without the need of, of interaction with ops person or a dev person they, they can just click buttons the devs don't need to be doing anything manual it's it's reproducible it's consistent i just commit my code and i go through that sort of git flow of merging approach and ops can concentrate on on doing smart work which is building the platform better rather yeah. than than kind of c- consistently just can you deploy this application mm. for me nobody wants to be doing that Raising a ticket, can right. you deploy this? Yeah, sure. Everybody benefits from the time being spent mm-hmm. on putting the brain power into the automation as opposed to the manual sort of interaction. So yeah, I think it's really important. Maybe an interesting anecdote around what we did there as well at Noths was, do you remember that we had some, I think we, we, we were using Ansible at the time for, for our mm-hmm. infrastructure as code. 
And when you created a new microservice, you had to copy this Ansible playbook. And then you, yes. would, you would modify it. And the developers were like, oh, I'm, I can't work with this. What is this YAML? I can't, I can't deploy <laughs> this. It's really not that complicated. You copy this, you paste it in there, and you change these three things. But yeah. there was a massive barrier there for some reason. Yeah. And we tried to educate, and we tried to kind of do training, and people were just like, I, I don't want to do this. Mm. So what did we do? Well, we, we created a CI job, which copied it, created the GitHub repo, cloned all of the things, put the, the defaults in. So that then when a developer wanted to create a new microservice, all they did was run a CI job and then clone the, the, the resulting GitHub repo. And it just smoothed it out. It wasn't, it was a, like a simple bash script, but, but I think user experience you've got to think about. And, and I think when there's resistance, you shouldn't just assume that it's just somebody being awkward. Yeah, you just reminded me, Nick, one of my most happy memories in some ways of, of that, but there's many happy memories of that project. That project was I learned was a lot and it was project. great working with awesome people. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. But one of the key things, more from the Java side, I remember when uh, my colleague, Will, who I was working with, yeah. integrated a bunch of stuff into the template project in Java. So you could literally click a button, yeah. type in the name of your project, like new service one, yeah. and out would pop a, an archetype effectively with pre-existing hooks into testing and into observability. That was, that was game-changing. I didn't need to think about this stuff, yeah? I was talking to this, talking loosely around this sort of stuff the other day as well that i love go and i've been programming go for a, a good few years now probably six or seven years or if you're a recruitment consultant i've been doing it 20 years but yeah. the, the the interesting thing i found around go and the limitations on the structure of the language the, the simplicity of the structure of the, the the objects in the language it makes it really difficult to to kind of take that nice templatized approach. You know, when you've got something like mm-hmm. Java or .NET and you can have abstract classes and mm, yep. it it kind of hides all of that implementation, which in some ways it's good. In most ways I think it's good, but with Go, it, it just isn't as easy to kind of to, to do that. What do you think uh, the importance of observability is like? It is, I'm guessing, super important. Yeah. Um, but is it more challenging with modern infrastructure and modern service design, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the way I look at observability is observability is the thing that you don't need until you realize you need it. And most of the time, as I said, it, it's just something which which exists. You know, I, I think that in a perfect world, never looking at a dashboard is a wonderful place to be. But mm. I mean, it's it's an unusual. When when you get a sort of a modern microservice system, like obviously with with just say metrics, which is a more sort of traditional approach, everything is is localized to that service. There's there's it's very difficult to kind of correlate things. So you you can understand very very quickly where something has gone wrong. So I could see that my service, which is storing something into the database, is going wrong. It's running slow. And that's why everything's breaking. Now, I can't see the reasons why. So I see what, you know, like where, but I can't really see why. And I think that's where things like distributed tracing Mm. really start to become benefit because I can see the full request trace that, that leads to the incident. I've got that kind of forensic trail and I'm genuinely excited about 
tracing. I think the major barrier to tracing at the moment is is kind of the limitations around storage and retrieval. I mean, obviously, a trace is a much bigger document yeah, than a right. than a very small kind of metric. It, it doesn't reduce as well either. But I'm I'm very excited about the possibility that one day I feel we will not use metrics at all, and what we will actually do is just have everything in a trace. All of your your kind of your mm. gauges, such as CPU memory consumption at that particular instance in time, IOPS at that particular instance in time. Yeah, interesting. Logging, so any log messages which you've emitted, and you you kind of tie that all into this one document. And and again, I think like how how that's distributed, whether the metrics end up in Prometheus and the the kind of the raw trace data ends up in something like Jaeger or Elasticsearch or, or wherever, and the logs end up in like Logstash or like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't care. I just yep. want to be able to interrogate all of that information together because that's what gives me the rich picture. And that's what helps me to understand what has been the cause of, of whatever has gone wrong. Mm. So I've got to give a shout out to uh, Lightstep and Honeycomb. I've seen Charity and Liz talk at conferences about their sort of Facebook and Google experiences of being able to ask these ad hoc questions of data sets, yeah. high cardinality data sets. And like Ben and the Lightstep team are talking very much about being able to identify exactly where a problem is and point the developers to there would be okay. super powerful, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I, I think sort of cardinality is really important as well. I, I always look at the resolution of data is really important because... One of the approaches that you you tend to take is that over time you can reduce the data and start combining it and you mm, sort yes. of reducing the resolution of it because as time goes on, it becomes less important. Mm. I kind of question whether that's true or not because one of the things we used to do at Not on the High Street was have Black Friday. We would always like to look at the previous year's data. A lot of people say, well, it's never going to be exactly the same. We found that things were actually remarkably similar. Mm. You know, the traffic patterns were, things like that were very, very similar. And being able to have that high resolution of data to to use as reference when we were kind of doing performance testing on the the next year's Mm. system was, was really, really useful. And I think if we reduced that down to, hourly averages we would have we would have lost out a lot so uh, we literally replayed the data back if memory serves nick didn't we We literally replayed the requests and the shape of the traffic like i know almost verbatim to test the existing traffic match the new system yeah the way that we used to do it which you can actually achieve right now which worked beautifully for us was we looked at google analytics and we oh, would, yes. yes. So we would yeah. we would look at the the percentage of requests that were coming into a particular page and a particular product, mm. and what the distribution across all of that was. And we would then use that to generate a load test. So we would mm. say that if if ninety five percent of pages were the the home page, when we were building our lo- our kind of our global load test, we would send ninety five percent of our traffic to the home page, and if 10% were for payments, then we'd send 10% of payments. So we were we were actually simulating the load on the system as it would be at a particular point of time based on last mm-hmm. year's traffic. What um, what I think is really interesting now is the capability of using like DataWire's Ingress, which is Envoy backed, and being able to take that traffic and maybe actually log the, the, the traffic itself mm, to be able yeah, to yeah. do 
you know, replay of actual requests. And I think we're going to see some very cool stuff in, in the sort of the coming years around, around that replay of replay of live data rather than kind of simulating the, the structure of it. But, you know, like it worked great for us. I think it's definitely something I recommend people digging into. Testing in a complex system is hard. I think we found actually having real user data, there's no need then to simulate or to kind of cut up the system. If we actually pump in requests yeah. in the front end, see what happened. And that is pretty much, you know, providing, as you mentioned, you get a representative sample of, of actual requests being made. Yeah. You test your system pretty well, don't you? Yeah. And, and I think it's, again, back to kind of the questions we were looking at earlier around that, that sort of the business logic thing. I've worked on a system before which had an outage. And the reason that the system had an outage was because Elasticsearch crashed. And the reason that Elasticsearch crashed was because a particular input from a search box caused a basically a death spiral query within, <laughs> within Elasticsearch. And it took the, the, entire, the, the entire system offline just by somebody basically, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but somebody used like two stars in a, in a search term. <laughs> And that was enough to cause this this bad query inside of Elasticsearch, which literally just it just was running 100% CPU to to try and resolve this recursive recursive query, and that was just like well you you never think anybody's nobody's ever going to mm. do that, and and it wasn't malicious. It wasn't like somebody deliberately was trying to DDoS us by pro- probing. <laughs> it was literally just somebody probably fat fingered a search term. Yeah, it happens, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. But that took a lot of discovery to figure out what was going on there because we knew that it had happened, but we didn't have the resolution on our logs and our metrics to be able to understand exactly Mm. what the input was, which caused that crazy output. And eventually we kind of managed to dig through with a little bit of experimentation, but certainly being able to capture requests, maybe even just erroneous requests, Mm, Yeah, that's going to be a massive benefit to... being able to just catch all of those those edge cases and again wasn't the bug wasn't the developer did anything wrong yeah it was just we never wrote the feature yeah super interesting nick final question is what do you think the future developer experience will look like in say three years time compared to today i think i'd like to think in three years time we are going to we're going to come to terms with the fact that we need a common paths which sits over the the tooling that we're working with right now Mm. not just kubernetes everything we need that we need to get back to that heroku like efficiency which allows us to deliver business features rather than every developer spending x percent of their time doing exactly the same as every other developer in other other company mm-hmm. and ultimately all we're doing is figuring out a way of writing canary deployments or something so yeah. i think we're going to get to to that stage i honestly think and don't get me wrong i am the biggest ide snob because I know how to use Vim and Tmux, therefore I am superior. Indeed. <laughs> I think everything is going to head back to the IDE. I am very impressed with the user experience with tooling like uh, Golan, well, any of the IntelliJ stuff, and yeah, awesome. Visual Studio Code. And yep. I think as developers, we're going to start heading back that way because of the the efficiencies of operation, the fact that Clicking a button is 50 times faster than running five commands. And mm. I think that we were driven towards or away from the ID for, for two reasons. One, I think it was snobbishness that we thought we were 
exercising our own intelligence by by doing things in a complicated way, but but also out of necessity mm. that the tools just didn't exist. And it was a case mm. of cobbling together these five different tools to, to get this workflow that we want. I think that, yeah, it's going back to the IDE. Always a pleasure to chat to you. Always love your insights. Always learn a bunch chatting to you. So thanks very much, Nick. Appreciate that. Pleasure, buddy. Anytime.